I'd like to begin by reading to you a passage that caught my attention. It comes from David Cotter's commentary on Genesis, which is part of the Burrito Lam series. This is what he says. One reaches the point of the book, he's referring to Genesis, which has focused for such a lengthy period on the third generation of the chosen family, wondering whether any advance has been made. Are these people, despite their decades-long relationship of intense intimacy with Yahweh, any closer to being a blessing? Has God succeeded in forming them for blessing any more than He was able to instill in Adam and Eve a love for paradise and a desire to remain there? Has the story of the entire relationship between God and humanity been one more redolent of failure than success? The flood failed to eradicate the human tendency toward violence. Abraham finally obeyed utterly but never spoke to God thereafter. Isaac and Rebekah's family was torn with strife. Jacob's family is distrustful of each other and dismissive of its patriarchal figure. But still, God endures. Cotter goes on to say, I think that the story is less one about human transformation than it is about divine perseverance. God is Savior. God is always Savior. So God will attempt once again to save a relationship with the one who fights with Him. Thank goodness God perseveres. As we move into this section, I'd like to focus with you on the many and profound ways that Israel continues to experience God's presence. Chapter 35 begins with God speaking to Jacob. The first four words are quite simple, and they caught my attention. God said to Jacob. Now, how casually and matter-of-factly the author reminds us that Jacob and God are in relationship. God said to Jacob. Jacob and God seemingly speak to one another with the same ease that exists between friends or between parents and children. And for Israel, it is the most natural thing for God to converse with someone. Now, in our day and age, if someone said, God told Susie to do such and such, we would be skeptical, and we might even wonder about the person's mental health. But God does speak to us in ways we don't expect. Our task is to learn to recognize these ways and open ourselves to respond. We want to learn to discern God's presence and direction. In Joan Muller's book, Faithful Listening, she speaks of the mystery of discernment as the God-given desire to listen to God by following the Spirit of Jesus present within daily life. Muller believes that we learn to hear God's voice through common sense, through scripture and tradition. In other words, we may not hear God's voice giving us detailed directions, but we can rely on the voice of God in the living word of scripture, in the teachings of our church, and in the wisdom of accumulated life experiences. In the 16th century, St. Ignatius of Loyola devised rules for discernment. He wanted to help his companions in the Society of Jesus determine and follow those movements that directed them toward a loving relationship with God while learning to reject whatever led them away from God. The rules of Ignatius continue to help people like us discern God's movement in our lives. We are encouraged to see or perceive what is happening within and around us so that we can understand and make sense of our world. We discipline ourselves not just to see, but to see meaning, and then we can begin to take action. You and I may not say, God speaks to me when we talk about God's presence in our daily lives. But every day, God does speak to us. Nature calls us to remember the Creator. Someone hurting brings out our compassion. 
A series of events prompts us to change some course of action at work. God can and does speak to us in all of these ways, and it's just as natural as two friends speaking together or a parent nudging a child in the best direction. In our biblical narrative, Jacob is directed back to Bethel or El Bethel. You may recall that Bethel is the place where perhaps 20 years earlier, Jacob had camped overnight and had his vision of the ladder of angels. He had marked the place with a pillar on his first stop, and he now marked it with an altar, much as Abraham had earlier marked the same place with an altar. Bethel is located north of Jerusalem between the hill country of Ephraim, which is later called Samaria, and the plateau of Judah, later called Judea. And the site lay on an important travel and trade route through the region, but it became most significant for its sacred importance. The shrine of Bethel is mentioned throughout Israel's historical writings. It is second in importance only to Jerusalem. The language of going up to this place is pilgrimage language, much like we would find in the Psalms of pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Later, you might look at Psalm 122 to see what I mean by this. Bethel has been associated with important biblical figures, Abraham and Jacob, of course, but also Rebekah's nurse, Deborah, and the prophetess, Deborah, and the last of the great judges, Samuel. Once King Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the shrine dimmed in importance and was later destroyed by King Josiah. But at the time Jacob arrived there, all those layers of history had not yet unfolded. Recall that the previous chapter in Genesis told the awful story of the rape of Dinah and the violent revenge of her brothers. Now Jacob builds an altar and calls his family to be purified so that they might worship. Several scholars suggest that the ritual of purification was necessary because of the defilement described in the previous chapter. They were being purified of their sins and they were putting aside false gods. Walter Brueggemann has suggested that this story is one way of speaking about how Israel could remain in Canaan, surrounded by so much that was foreign to their experience of God and contrary to their faith. They could have chosen to compromise, or they could have chosen violent destruction of their enemies. But here at Bethel, their choice was what Brueggemann calls radical symbolization. The dramatic ritual of purification, altar building, and worship is a way of symbolically demonstrating faithfulness, a way of saying that a people can disengage themselves from the powers and practices all around them that endanger faith. Now, in our own tradition, the rituals associated with the sacraments have the potential to be radically symbolic. And by this, I mean that in addition to the reality of God's presence in these actions, the rituals themselves can become sources of healing, of empowering, of remembering, of initiating. Because of baptism, each time we dip our hands into holy water to cross ourselves in the name of the Trinity, we can say that the world's values are not our own. We claim the cross and all it symbolizes. Each time we receive the Eucharist, we can pledge ourselves to help feed the hungers of the world around us. Each time we are anointed, we can claim the freedom that comes with being a child of God and a builder of God's kingdom. Just like Jacob and his family, we are challenged to put away the false gods that vie for attention and put on the new clothes of faith, hope, and love that mark us as God's people. At Bethel, Jacob and his family first put away the gods of the region. The text once again recounts the renaming of Jacob as Israel and then recounts God's promise of fruitfulness and land. Israel's people experienced God's presence in a very profound way through generations of children born to bear God's promise. 
Perhaps that's why the authors of biblical texts spend so much time recounting the stories of birth, the escapades of adult children, and even the listing of genealogies. Such recounting of family trees is evidence, really, of the fruitfulness promised by God. These stories and lists of ancestors remind us, too, of God's abiding presence, not just with one individual, but within families that would grow into nations. Even the family of Esau is legitimate, as it were. Brueggemann points out that while God has a particular and precious relation to the chosen community descended through Jacob, it is not the Lord's only commitment. Beginning with chapter 35, the writer or writers of Genesis shift our attention from one generation, which is that of Jacob and Esau, to the next generation, which is that of Joseph and his brothers. Through the telling of Joseph's early life, we find ourselves with God's people in Egypt. Now remember, Genesis was not composed in any written form until long after the key event of their history, and that's the Exodus. And we know that Exodus begins in Egypt. So how did the slaves come to be there in the first place? Well, the Joseph narrative answers that question. Though the Joseph narrative doesn't come right out and tell us how God is acting, we do look for God's presence working through the actions, both good and bad, of the human characters. Jealousy, ill-laid plans, natural disaster, trickery, and eventually reconciliation all set the stage with all the elements of a good drama. These are the vehicles whereby Israel experienced God's presence. Right away, Joseph becomes the new young star on the horizon of Israel's history. He is loved best by his father. He is the proud owner of a distinctive garment of some kind, and it seems he gets to stay home dreaming while the older brothers are out working the fields. Your commentary makes a simple observation that when Jacob sent Joseph to his brother, Joseph responds with the Hebrew word hineni, translated in the New American Bible Revised Edition as I am ready. It could also be translated as here I am or I'm ready to go. It's a response of willing service to God, much like the response of others throughout salvation history. People like Moses who took off his sandals before the burning bush and answered here I am. Or the young Samuel who repeatedly said the same when he thought that Eli was calling him and it was really God. Or Isaiah who responded to God, here I am, send me. As he is portrayed in Genesis, Joseph could have claimed privilege, but instead he responded to his father, and we will see to God, in a spirit of willing service. Even though Joseph's dreams caused much trouble in his personal life, they serve as a kind of bridge between the promise of land and then arriving in the land itself. Most great, great turns of history begin with a dream, sometimes a clearly articulated dreams and sometimes a vague hope for a brighter future. Generations of Africans sold into slavery dreamed of release from bondage. The music and poetry that have survived from the period of slavery in the United States gives us not only the words of their dream, but the tone and the passion. That dream of release led to further dreams, like the dream of a land where people would not be judged by the color of their skin, or the dreams of individual African Americans to achieve positions of economic or political leadership. A dream of this type starts out large and in some ways rather vague, but as it unfolds, it becomes much more specific, and this was definitely true for the people of Israel. The promise of descendants and then of a land of milk and honey must have seemed like the stuff of fairy tales, but then the children began to come, and then the movement of peoples cried out for a permanent home and roots in God's promised land. Joseph's dreams were one small part of that larger dream. 
In much of the Hebrew scriptures, God communicated through dreams. The content of dreams held a message that was taken seriously. Joseph's dreams were both a promise and a threat. They were a promise from God to provide leadership to the people, but they were a threat to those whose position in the family order could be overturned. And this tension between promise and threat sets up the conflict between the dreamer and his dream versus those who would kill the dream, which might indeed require killing the dreamer. But killing or getting rid of the dreamer does not kill the dream. The dream has a life of its own because in it, God speaks the future. Once the dream is born, it enters the imagination of a people or a person, and things are never the same. For Israel, the dream will not die with Joseph's disappearance. Instead, it will take shape in a most unusual reversal of fortunes, which will be the topic of the next couple of lessons covering the end of the book of Genesis. God is present in the dream and even in the unfortunate response of Joseph's brothers. Unwittingly, they have elevated Joseph's favored son's status. And unwittingly, they have set Joseph in an environment where he will indeed be the one to exercise power in a nation and authority in his own family. This is not painted as coincidence, but as God's presence in the normal and extraordinary upheavals of family life. Interrupting the Joseph narrative is a story that seems bizarre to our sensibilities, the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, where is God present in this episode? First, let's get some background. You may be aware that in ancient civilizations of this region, a family survived only through its male heirs. It was extremely important to select a wife who could bear children. A barren woman was suspect in the eyes of ancient cultures. And it was equally important that a family guard its possessions, its name, and its potential for heirs. So if a woman was widowed, the remaining male members of the family were held responsible to preserve his name and his possessions. The widowed woman had rights to marriage with another member of the family, not for her sake so much as for the sake of the family of her husband. Continuing the family line was a moral responsibility to this larger community. And this is the situation Judah faced when not one of his sons died but two. And Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, was legally betrothed to the one remaining son. When it became clear that Judah was not going to run the risk of losing that son, Tamar devised a plan to supply an heir and to secure her own future in a world where childless women didn't long survive. She tricked Judah into a sexual relationship that resulted in pregnancy. Now, our job as readers of this text is not to make judgments based on our own culture's understanding of sexual morality. Instead, we have to ask that simple question that I proposed as you started this study some eight weeks ago. Why did the author include this story? The key to answering that question is in Judah's own pronouncement when he was identified as the father of Tamar's child. Look at chapter 38, verse 26. And there we read, She is in the right rather than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. The issue is not adultery or harlotry. The issue is Judah's refusal to honor a moral commitment. The issue is responsibility and righteousness. Judah was more concerned with self-preservation, with private interests, than he was with the well-being of that community. Now, if Judah had denied paternity, Tamar would have had no legal recourse. Judah's personal items in Tamar's possession may have identified him, but still his word would have carried much more weight than her physical evidence. It may seem remarkable that this leader of Israel got himself into this situation in the first place. 
but it is much more remarkable that he publicly proclaimed Tamar more righteous than himself. Nowhere does the text question Tamar's morality. Again, the issue is social responsibility, an arena where Israel relied on God's presence. The final chapter in this lesson is Genesis chapter 39, which is really the beginning of the very interesting story of Joseph's rise, fall, and rise again in Egypt. We're returning to the narrative that dominates the final 15 chapters of Genesis. And again, we focus on another way Israel spoke of its experience of God's presence. The recurring line in the first few verses is, the Lord was with him. This is the first explicit use of that phrase within the Joseph cycle of stories. Joseph knew that God was loyal, and in response to that loyalty, Joseph himself was loyal to his master in Egypt. Because of his faith and his sense of ethical responsibility, Joseph would not take advantage of his master's wife. His moral standard is not motivated by what others think or by the letter of the law, but by an inner law that is rooted in his sense of God's presence in his life. More remains to be seen of what will happen to Joseph, but for now we can say that when God's presence is real in a person's life, high moral standards are possible. Joseph did not violate his master's trust, nor did he demoralize his master's wife. He stood his ground in a truthful way. In prison, he was treated well, another sign that, as the biblical writer tells us, the Lord was with Joseph. I found a small item that caught my attention as never before. You noticed, and the commentary commented on the two times that Joseph's garment played a role in the story. As I prayed about this one little piece of information, I was struck that Joseph shed his outer garment, or was stripped of it, but never shed his identity that part of him that illustrates at the core the kind of man God had made him to be. He may have lost his wonderful robe when his brothers tossed him in the cistern, and he may have lost his cloak when his master's wife framed him for a crime, but Joseph never lost his dream. God's presence was real to him. The dream did not yet make sense to Joseph, but it kept its power in his life because the Lord, the giver of the dream, remained with him. Let's pray that God will give each of us a dream, a way to visualize God's directing presence in our lives.